I don't know how you get your news in life if there's a news feed that comes across. But uh, I remember a couple days ago when the news feed came across uh, that there were some attacks in Paris, France. And uh, first of all, you think it's a little bit of a, okay, that's sort of we hear about those things happening. Then you start to realize, no, that these attacks were multiple attacks, that they were planned attacks, that there were eight terrorists, and they uh, had thought through how they were going to uh, uh, have terror raid into a concert hall at the same time that they were doing some of the restaurants, some of the famous restaurants, at the same time that they were trying to get a suicide bomber inside a stadium to blow himself up to create chaos so people ran out so other suicide bombers would blow up in the midst of those people running out. Who thinks of such a thing? Who thinks of such a thing and why do people think of such a thing? Our hearts immediately identify with it as the places around the world that lit up in the France collars of red, white, and blue because we have an affinity, we have an identity for what's happened when we see tragedy occur around the world. And in particular, with this tragedy that happened this week, we think to ourselves, that could have been us. We go to concerts. We go to restaurants. We go to sporting events, right? And the attack is on the civilians trying to place fear. Evil has prayed about that there is evil in this world, and evil takes a hold in a multiplicity of ways. The first responders that came... You identify with the first responders that came, which is uh, the next slide. And the, the, the immediately aftermath, you think, okay, if I was there, what would have I done? How would have I interacted? And now they're peeling back the layers of how it happened and trying to figure out how to stop it. How do you stop evil? We commemorate. So we gather around our thoughts. We pray like we just prayed. And so there's candle vigils and there was other kinds of remembrances that were established. A spirit of solemnness because there, to some degree, is not only prayer, but there is hopelessness. How do we stop evil in our world? There was another event that happened this week that occurred on Tuesday. Some of you might have read about it. Uh, it was interesting that it made national news. I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. We had sort of an affinity of brothers who started churches in Indianapolis over the years. And this young gentleman here, his name is Davey Blackburn, he started a church in Indianapolis three years ago called Resonate. He comes out of some background that I come out of in the Wesleyan Church. And this, uh, his wife, Amanda, uh, actually Amanda's um, uh, aunt was a college friend of my wife, Melissa. Amanda was left at home early Tuesday morning when Davey went to work out. A burglar apparently saw him leave, thought there was a good chance to uh, take advantage of the home. He came in, and he ended up shooting her and killing her. With their baby left, they had just announced to the congregation last Sunday morning that they were three months pregnant. They'd been in a marriage series, actually, They'd been sharing together on stools up front in their small church that had started there in Indianapolis. But today is her funeral. In fact, in a couple hours today, the church is across the street from where I came from in Indiana. It's a large mega church, probably seats four or 5,000 people. They are having the public funeral service for Amanda Blackburn because evil invaded their home through the life 
of a person on Tuesday. Now that hits close to me because I think in terms of when I was younger and we had our first child, I'm like, that's me. That's us. How could those kinds of things happen? And so when this happens, and it's almost like in our culture, we become a little bit not necessarily numb to it. We just don't know how to process it anymore. And so we just sort of let it go and forget about it after a while. And I'm sure in a few weeks, the whole Paris attacks will be forgotten of in many ways. There'll be other murder stories that run the headlines. But for goodness sake, sometimes you just want to yell out and say what? Stop this evil! The author and very intelligent thinker, G.K. Chesterton, responded to a request, I believe, from the London Times a number of years ago when the London Times wanted to get author's response to the question, what's gone wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton responded with probably the shortest editorial response ever written. And it said, dear sirs, in regards to your question, what's wrong with the world? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Now, he wasn't saying by that that I am the one who's responsible for all the evil in the world, but he was saying it's I am, it's within I am. There's something wrong within the human nature that causes the world to go awry like it does. And so what's gone wrong with the world? What do we do? Well, there's a lot of strategic things we can do. There's a lot of intelligence that needs to be going on. There may be uh, disciplined military things that need to happen and policing needs to happen and tracking people. I understand all that. But do you realize we can do that until now, until eternity's forever? And there is no hope with this fallen, broken world changing. There will be evil in this world because... There is evil within the hearts of us as human beings. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to hear the idea of what's referred to as the fallen sinful nature. But there is a bent towards evil. Because evil is defined as self-centeredness away from God-centeredness. Ravi Zacharias says that evil is to life what contradiction is to reason. If an argument is contradictory, reason breaks down. If life is consumed by evil, life breaks down. The problem of evil begins with me. So you almost want to take a terrorist and, and, and try to think through, okay, hey, how, how do you get there? How do you get there? Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a, a radical uh, belief in their Islamic faith that drives into a jihad and all those kinds of answers, but you've got to press even past that and says, Why do you go there? Because it's truly not God-centered worship. It's a self-centered trajectory in life. Power controls my life. And so we sit here this morning in light of tragedies like the Paris attacks or like the Amanda Blackburn uh, murder this week, and we say, well, okay, so what do we do? Well, I tell you what we do. We do exactly what we've been doing week in and week out in this room in the last few weeks. We look to God's Word. We've been in a series 
in the book of Colossians, Paul writing to young Christians in a small town where the gospel had spread and they begun to be Christ followers. And in Colossians, we've summed it up this way. There's a verse in there that says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Christ in you, the hope of glory, is also the answer for the evil in the world. Unless there is redemption, unless the heart changes from a bent towards sin, towards a God consciousness, there is no hope. But we do have hope. And we need to not just study the hope, we need to actualize the hope in our life. Christ in me, the hope of glory is the answer. And we've walked into Colossians chapter 3, and Colossians chapter 3 is really heart and soul of some of the practical exhortation that is coming from the Apostle Paul to the believers. And in Colossians 3, if we just rehearse what he's saying there, he said, if you recall in Colossians 3 chapter 1, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, those words are just not, oh, those are nice Bible words. Those are words of hope for a decadent culture, for an evil world, for sinister and critical and not just evil-minded people, but double-minded people like all of us can be sometimes, that we need to set our minds, set our hearts on things above in the glory of God. It's quite an inspirational passage as he's walking through the supremacy of Christ and he positions this fresh and new to them in Colossians chapter 3. But then as we looked at last week, he sort of, he sort of goes really hard, hardcore on it pretty quick. Because of this great truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. So we talked about last week how because of this great truth of Christ in us, the hope of glory and him changing our lives, then we need to practically live out how this is to move forward. And we are to take off the old clothes and we are to put on the new clothes, right? So let's go back to that there slide that lists some of those things of the old self. The old self, since you have taken off the old self, what are the practices? Let's just say them out loud. Ready? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. That's not to be of you if you're a Christ follower. That's the old life. Take off those dirty clothes and put on the new life, the new self. And the new self began to list these things in the verses we just mentioned to you. The new self says this. Clothe yourself with, and let's read it, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other. Forgive, love, and be unified. That comes from the verses that follow right up on there. Since then, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another whatever grievances you may have. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together. We need peace, we need calm, we need love, we need compassion, we need strength. But where does it come from? You can't go to Walmart and buy it. But you can receive it because Jesus is those things. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You want the beauty of the life that you desire around, then begin with your own heart, inviting Christ to come and live within you. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that because simply put, I'm not interested in religion and trying to go and get these things. I need it to be born within me. And so I need to be born again. I need Christ to come within me. And that's my hope of glory, Christ in me, right? And as he comes, he is these things. In fact, the Galatians passage that talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it says the fruit of the Spirit is. It doesn't say are these things. The fruit of the Spirit is, and it's referring to the Spirit. And all the fruits of the Spirit are embedded with the Holy Spirit. And we sang about that, Lord. I want to dwell in your place. I want more of you. Give me a hunger for you. And so our first response to the evil of the world around us really needs to be gratitude that there is hope. Our second response is to let that hope come dwell within us. And through Christ, then, he can begin to live through us. And as Christ begins to live through us, then, well, we can see the world change around us. I actually had some Facebook uh, posts that I put up the first week. I put up this post, if you remember it probably why Jacob's back there confused on me a little bit. I jumped over him. My status report for week one was as Christ followers, my identity is based not on my feelings, looks, deeds, experiences, or circumstances, but on the resurrected life of Jesus in whom I find my salvation, my worth, my strength, my hope, and my joy. And then last week I posted this in reference to where we were and what we just reviewed. Today, because of the resurrected life of Jesus dwelling in me, I again choose to put off my old self with its practices and put on my new self, which is being renewed in the image of Christ. So we looked last week about this. Okay, Christ is in me. I'm taking off the old. I'm putting on the new. We looked at a few verses. I want to go back and drill down now into even some of the deeper aspects of how this practically plays out. And it's going to practically play its way out where we live on a day-by-day basis, and that is in our relationships. It says this in Colossians 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ... Rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. That's what we need this week, right? And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. As you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's a good section of scripture to memorize because some of you have been running haggard this week. You've been worried. You've been frustrated. You've been concerned about all kinds of activity that's happened around you. Some of it's just life. Some of it's maybe evil. Some of it's just weariness. And the Apostle Paul would breathe into your life these words. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Not the anxiety, not the stress, not the fear that the adversary wants to bring. But let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Since as members of one body, you are not called to run haggard and weary and frustrated and angry and upset and overwhelmed. That's not God's plan for you this week. He wants you to live in a place of peace. And to be thankful that there's hope in that. And one of the ways that you allow the peace of God to rule in your heart is to take the Word of God and let the Word of God dwell in you richly. You know, the encouragement to do rooted. I can't just sort of step right on top of that for you, Tiff. In fact, on your way out today, grab the rooted card, be able to sign up for it. I tell you what it does. It's a discipline that moves you in to letting the Word of God dwell in your life as you read it, as you study it, as you journal about it, and as you interact with others in a small group about it. How much of the Word of God dwelt in your life this week? I can guarantee if you're like me and and you're saying, Carrie, you're the pastor, aren't you? Isn't this your job? Friends, I've got kids. I've got responsibilities. Life can move as quickly in my lane as it moves in your lane. And you can go from one week to the next without much of the Word dwelling in your life. But it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then you teach and admonish and encourage one another with all wisdom that's involved in that. It leads to singing and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's something about the word of God that right-sizes your focus. And so if you want to take off the old and put on the new, then it's pretty important for you to be able to pick this up every week and read, and study. It's not about the volume that you read, but just reflect. What does that mean to me? Or what was Paul thinking when he wrote that? Or what was Jesus, you know, who was he talking to when he said that? How would that reflect to me? This needs to be a steady diet in your life. The Word of God should dwell in you richly. And if you do not have the discipline to that, And it's not a commercial here for Rooted, but I I want everybody to go through Rooted because there's a discipline that establishes yourself in the Word and a discipline in letting that Word bring an experience, an experience of God into your life. So here's Paul. He's exhorting and, um, and challenging in these kinds of ways. And so really we sort of can add to that list, putting on the new self, clothe yourself. So clothe yourself not just with what we said, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, but let's clothe yourself with the peace of Christ, to let the peace of Christ rule. I think there's a next slide on that. The peace of Christ to rule in your life. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell, teach, admonish, sing, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right? So that's the taking off the old, putting on new, and now here he moves right into your everyday world with relationships. And he's going to talk about three areas of relationship. The relationship with our spouse, the relationship with our family, our children, and the relationships that we have at the workplace. 
So Colossians 3.18. Colossians 3.18 says this. Oh, whoa. Really? You're going to talk on that verse? I don't have a choice, friends. That verse is in the Scriptures. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But here's the thing Paul's doing. He's not just juxtaposing one after another. He sort of has three uh, um, doubles listed here. And so we take verse 19, and verse 19 says this to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Verse 19. All right? Where is he going with this? He's not going with where the world has taken these verses. The word submit has nothing to do with equality. The word submit, as it relates here in this verse, should never be taken in a measure that is many times taken to abuse the marriage relationship and also to be able to abuse and put down women and a wife. That was not in what Paul's thinking was here. He is talking not about equality issues. He's talking about role issues. And there are roles that happen in life to make life go better. And God intended for marriage to be between a woman and a man, a wife and a husband, and how that interplay works. Now, you tell me, if you bring a woman and a man together and they both are sinful creatures, aren't we all? And you put them in the confines of a marriage relationship that says, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, until death do us part. You are creating an incubator for explosion. You been there? Sorry. You bring them in? Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I love you. I do. I love you as well. But I'm bringing all my junk. And I'm bringing all my junk. And we're going to see how this goes. It's really a place of discipleship, I think. But you've got sinful beings in a marriage relationship. And both individuals need to have the redemption of Christ living in them. But then as that marriage unit goes forward, God has a plan for how it interacts and how it works. And the word for submission, I really think, is in the heart. He casts back to thinking in terms of how Jesus Christ submitted to the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. Do you think Jesus Christ thought he was any less God because he submitted to the Father? No. But there was something beautiful about his submissiveness to the Father's will and how it played out for the redemption of the world. Submission has nothing to do with equality or one-upmanship, one over another, and who's in control and, and, and bantering and all that. It has to do with this beautiful interactive movement of God, evidenced in the life of Christ. And the word submissive is actually a word that means support, supportive. Husbands, you know, don't, don't be you know, harsh with your wives and parading them because you need to know that the wife's job is to come to you and to be supportive be submissive. You know, I got a podium up here and it's got some papers on it and it's got the Bible on it and, and it's holding it right here. But guess what? There is a support going down underneath 
And if it was not for this support, then I would not be able to use this podium in an appropriate way. Now, that's not demeaning to the wife. It just says to the wife, be supportive of your husband in all that God's called him to do. It doesn't mean to submit to him if he's doing something wrong. Scripture doesn't teach you to do that. Because some people say, well, what do we do? How, how do I submit to a husband if he's not following Jesus? Well, that's, that, there's some hard things in there. But it does not mean that you're going to follow him down a path of disobedience according to Scripture. It does not teach that. But what it's saying is you need to be submissive to him in his role as spiritual head of the home, as we often refer to it as. Because you see, husbands are called to love their wives and not be harsh with them. I almost feel like this, this whole idea of submission, if it was lived down in a much more appropriate measure and encouraged in the beauty that God intended it to be in a marriage, it would really get some men to have, I don't know, some fear in their life to get their act together. Wife pulls up the stool, says to the husband, Honey, we got a decision to make in this home about a couple things. And I just want you to know that I believe God's called you to lead us in this. And I want to support you in the decision making. And I'm going to submit myself to you. That doesn't mean she crawls down in a hole in that moment. She says, I want to submit myself to the supportive leadership God's called you to as to how we interact in this home. And at that moment, I tell you what, because I'm a man, I'm a husband. We start to chatter inside to ourselves, going, oh, I don't know what to do. Okay, what am I going to do? Oh, dear, I could really screw up. I could make the wrong decision on this one. Okay, should we move? Should we not move? Should I change jobs? Should I not change jobs? Oh, my goodness, okay. That's what's happening inside of us. But hopefully what that would do is cause us as men to go back and crash on the word of God in time with the Lord and say, what is the appropriate thing for me to lead our family in in this moment? And I believe there will be consistent, a sense of unity and a spirit as a, as a husband and wife work together in this. But that role issue places a burden of responsibility on a man. It's huge. And men, don't run from it. Don't, don't be flaky. Be godly, because that's what your spouse is looking for, for you to be godly. You don't have to have your act together in every corner and this and that. You know, and the whole thing of a husband leading a wife is not about controlling her, about bearing things on her, but my way or the highway kind of attitude. No, just lead with a godly life. And sometimes you get to those decision points in life, and you're like, hey, 50-50, I don't know. Let's defer to what God's Spirit is saying to us as a couple and as you lead as the man of the relationship. And sometimes, ladies, you're going to have to swallow and you're going to go, okay. All right. But I tell you what, God's with you on the journey. And maybe there's some things that you'll learn. Maybe there's some things he'll learn. But it's the role aspect and the supportiveness and wives submit to husbands, for this is fitting. It's right in the Lord. Jesus submitted himself to the Father's will, and it played out pretty good. And husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Friends, and I told you last week I was a little snarky with my wife, and God convicted me about that last week. It, it, it's so easy, isn't it, sometimes to be overly critical, to be 
sarcastic. We try to do that passive aggressive thing. Ooh, I hate that. Right? Just love them. You know, the most popular book, I mean, it probably still is, I don't know, on marriage right now is a simple book called Love and Respect. Women want to be loved. Men want to be respected. And we move forward. You know, this whole idea of roles is around us all the time. Men and women, when you watch your football games this afternoon, right, there's cornerbacks, there's tight ends, there's punters. Everybody has different roles. There's a coach. Do not ever see this verse as outdated in contemporary culture. It's not. Contemporary culture just needs to get a grip on how God made relationships to be interactive and supporting and encouraging, loving and respecting of one another. And so Paul's saying this. Check your heart. What's going on? Put to death all these kinds of things. Take off that old self. Put on the new self. All right? Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And as you do this moving forward, then men men and women gather around me. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting for the Lord. And husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. And then he moves on to the next duet. And it has to do with children and parents. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I know, I heard that one growing up all the time. The Bible says you're supposed to obey me. Thump, thump, thump. Well, then it says to parents this in verse 21. It says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. It goes both ways. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. God has placed your parents in that role as young children to be able to flourish underneath their guidance and their wisdom. And sometimes my parents made decisions, and I thought they were way off base. And when all is said and done, they were way off base. Most of the time they were on base. But God had called me to obey my parents. I want to do that. I want to go. You're not going. Why? I don't need to tell you why. You're just going to do it, right? (laughs) (laughs) So strong exhortation to those of you who are children, young followers, even some of you who still have a close relationship with your parent and you're sort of rubbing things raw with them. There is a sense of obedience even for you. Obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And, you know, can I just say this simply? I don't know, maybe I'll get off into some dangerous turf here. But, children, you need to obey your parents and let them know also almost the same thing that we just talked about with the spouses. Let them know that you're looking for God's guidance in your life through their decision-making. What you're calling them to do, what you're asking them to do, God's blessing will come on your life through that. And if I can say this then to parents, parents, God's called you to be a parent. He's not called you to be a friend. Now, 
don't get me wrong. I trust you have friendship with your kids. And I believe if we become adult kids, I have a beautiful friendship with my mom now, right? But we are called to lead them, to parent them, to guide them, and to instruct them. And we need to do it well because there's a lot of confusion today as to where kids need to run and to go. And can I encourage you with this as it relates to what he just said before these, let the peace of Christ rule in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Friends, you need to have your children around a community of believers on a regular basis that makes them contagious. That they become contagious by being around one another. I will say this. I think I've probably said it before, and this is where I get in trouble. I always want somebody to explain to me why in our contemporary culture, church gets trumped in children's life by everything else. Why is that? Well, they don't like church. What's that have to do with anything? In one sense, I'm serious. We'll try our best to make, but you're putting you know, front and center the priority of Christ and worship and learning about him in your life. My kids don't like to brush their teeth sometimes. They don't like to take showers sometimes. So why do I give them an option concerning being in the community of Christ? Youth group is youth group for a reason. Be there. Well, I didn't get much out of it, Dad. What? Does that have to do with anything? We're prioritizing it. Same could be true for us, right? Even being here this morning. Thanks for being here. You've made a good discipline, right? To be in the community of Christ. But if we are called to be the parents, then we need to be parents. We don't need to try to just, oh, I hope they like me. Oh, no, they're not going to like me if I make them do that or this and that. No. My dad would turn off the TV and he'd say, we're going to do devotions now. What? (laughs) Why? I'm in the middle of my show. We're going to do that. Why? Because he was being the parent. So I'm not going to go down that road too much more, but here's some great verses for us as parents. Be the parent. Prioritize church. Prioritize youth Christ. Prioritize spiritual development in your own home because this is your responsibility before God. And when you do it, don't be a Bible thumper over their head. Don't embitter them. Don't be harsh with them as well, or they'll become discouraged. Let me, I came across this uh, from a couple different people, and I put together my own on it, but I want to list for you just some uh, ways that we need to operate concerning our children. Do not do these four things. Do not ignore them. Do not indulge them. Do not insult them, and do not intimidate them. Do not ignore them is one of the harder things for me in my life. Because i got things to do. They need my attention. The days go by quickly. In many regards, week to week. And I think, oh, I I didn't really spend a lot of quality time with my kids. If I ignore them, they're going to get discouraged. Neither should I allow them to be indulged in things. Sort of creates one of the things that bothers me today, which is entitlement. Right? No, we're not buying that. We didn't come to the store for you. Okay? 
Don't let them be indulged in all kinds of, and just provide everything for them in life. Make them work at it. Be disciplined in the home. Don't insult them. You know, sometimes there's some weird parenting that goes, you know, I'm just going to get on them and call them a name and that will wake them up. No, don't. Don't. Love them. Encourage them. And don't intimidate them. All right? Now, you may say, doesn't that go against that whole friend thing? No. You are to be their parent, but a parent should not be intimidating. A parent should be endearing, even if the parent says something that the child does, disagrees with. But you can parent from an intimidating kind of standpoint. I read, I read this this week that there was one military guy that he used to line up all of his kids in a row to give them the instructions for that day. <laughs> That's just how he was wired. Going to line them up, going to give them the instructions. And uh, one day he asked at the end, he says, are there any questions? <laughs> Little boy puts up his hand and says, yes. How do I get out of this outfit? You lead with a loving parenting kind of endearment, but not intimidate. So concerning our children, do not ignore, indulge, insult, intimidate. But then I add these eyes because I was on a roll. So let's go with the eyes. But this is what we should do. But rather interact, instruct, inspire, and intercede. Interact with them. I have some incredible dialogue with my older sons right now. I thoroughly enjoy this age, interacting with them as they're thinking through life and decision-making and their heart is growing towards God. I, I interact, but part of that comes because you spend years in talking about little things too, whether it's homework or how they're scared or what they like to do with a craft. Interact, then you instruct now settle that you're instructing them in the way that they should go in Christ. And then inspire them. Should not it be true that they're the greatest inspiration in life for an individual should come from their parents? Rather than a child feeling like they're never measuring up or never meeting up to what mom or dad wants to say. But it's like, no, they're my number one cheerleader. And they inspire me not just with their words and their actions, but by the very life in which they live. I want to be like mom. I want to be like dad. Why? Because of who they are, their integrity, their love for others, their love for God. Inspire your children. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, all of us have a role somewhere in life with young ones that are and then intercede. Pray. Some of you are at wit's end what to do with your kids. Maybe they're too old. You can't influence them anymore. Just keep on praying. Your intercession, eternity will tell what your prayers do in bringing somebody back around to the straight and narrow, I believe. So don't do those things, but do do those things. I think when you look at this, do it. Children, father, parents, it's all embedded there. And then the last duet is this. Colossians 3.22 says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, 
And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, one of the questions in this passage is, wow, they're talking about slaves. Were there slaves then? Yes, there were slaves then. As probably said in the Roman world, 50% of the people uh, or more maybe were slaves. And this is not a racist kind of thing. Slaves were people that were sort of, they won victory over in wars or whatever. But the season wasn't right yet for slavery to be done away with. And Paul knew that as he took it on. Eventually it was, but it was caused maybe of things like this. He's exhorting slaves. And you can take that this morning as a sense of being an employee to a worker to your boss, all right? But it says this, take your life and in everything, in everything, not just when the worker's eye or the master's eye or the boss's eye, I'm sorry, is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity and reverence in your heart, obey your boss. Obey them. Oh, come on, really? Well, yeah, God's placed them over you. They're nuts. They're crazy. Somebody needs to replace them in the higher-up food chain. I don't know. This isn't going well. You're in the place you're at. God's working in your life. And he's going to even take this difficult person maybe that's over you. And as you obey and you live out what they've called you to do, it's going to go well with your soul. And it's actually going to work on them. You know, this particular thing here, not only when their eye is on you, it's that whole thing of, you know, how many times when uh, you've asked somebody to do a job, they do it while you're looking at them, but then they start horsing around when you don't look at them. Same human nature back then. And Paul's saying, do a good job. Do a good job not just when their eye's on you, but when they're away from you too. Because your almighty God knows. Stories told of a missionary in Africa who he was assigned to get the nationals to work on certain projects and to work hard at them. But he had a problem that uh, these African uh, nationals, they would not work hard unless he was there overlooking them to make sure they did the job. Well, this guy actually had a glass eye, and one day it got irritated, so he grabbed the glass eye, he took it out, and he placed it on his stump. And then he left, and he forgot and left his eye there. Well, he came back, and he realized everybody was still hard at work. They were knocking it down. It's like, well, I left. I thought they would be lazy again. He realized because he left his eye there <laughs> that they kept working hard. That worked until one day he came back, and they were all lounging and being lazy, and he realized one of the guys took his hat, and he put it over the eye. I always think of that story when I ever hear this. Not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, to butter up to them, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for God. So the exhortation is to the worker, to the slave in this particular area. And then it goes on. Um, it says this for the rest part of it. Whatever you do, verse 23, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Let me just point out a few items here. The first we just looked at, obey your earthly masters and everything, even when their eyes not on you. All right? Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Do you have that mindset when you go to work? What I'm doing, I'm not just doing for my boss. For a paycheck. I am doing it as an act of worship for the Lord. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. You are commissioned to worship in your workplace and offer it 
as an offering to God. Even if it's a menial task, a frustrating task, a dead-end task, God sees it. You're working for him. And then the next thing there, you will receive an inheritance as a, uh, uh, from the Lord as a reward. This is actually referring to a life yet to come. Scripture says that if we are faithful in little, God will make us faithful with much. We're faithful in these things, then we will be given greater authority. This here, to some degree, is our apprenticeship. And the eye, the master's on us. We're doing it for him. There are rewards that scriptures talk about. One of these days I'll do a series on the rewards that scripture talks about because a lot of times we're like, oh, I know there's a reward. No, there, there, I can't help it. It's in scripture. And here's Paul saying, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward of what you do with your obedience and everyday disciplined work. And then last thing, there is no favoritism. Do not think because of your status with God as a Christian, you can get away with stuff. People who do wrong in the workplace, they'll reimburse for their wrong. There is no favoritism. So try to stay clear from shrugging off responsibility because you think you have some type of status or position even with God. God really actually used this passage in my life to do, do some conviction for me this week. And um, it's not done. Because I think the Lord's trying to remind me again that it really has, it doesn't matter when all is said and done what his assignments are in life. What matters is my love for him and my choice to do whatever I'm doing to do well for his glory and him. Even if it is in hiddenness. Because this life will pass. There is eternity that awaits to us. I don't want to have any regrets about any responsibilities God's given me in this life. Great or small, I need to endear myself to my heavenly master and work well at every turn. Then the last thing he says in flipping this is to those who are bosses, the masters, Colossians 4.1, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Some of you lead other people. Some of you are actually own companies. Um, you have employees underneath you. Some of you just have a pecking order maybe at your workplace and you do lead other people. This is encouragement to you to be mindful that in everything you do, be right and be fair because the eye of the master is on you as well. You are not left unto your own to rule as you so please. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Take off the old. Put on the new. Get rid of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips and the list could go on and on. And then take that which is the new you that lives within you and put it on every day in your marriages, in your families, in your workplace. And God will be honored. So this is my status update for today. My marriage, my children, and my work 
deserve nothing less than my daily best. Therefore, whether in word or deed, my Jesus Christ who lives in me must daily live through me. I'll be posting that this afternoon as well. As a word to me, not just a word to all of us. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you that in the midst of a week when evil has seemed to be victorious, that we know that you defeated evil at the cross. And that through your death and your resurrection, we can come into a love relationship with you, inviting you into our life. And that that is our hope. It's our hope not only of glory, but it's our hope for tomorrow. That you would live your life through us. And Lord, as we touched on these very practical ways of living today in our marriages, in our families, in our workplace, I pray that your spirit would speak the right word of instruction to each and every person independently today as you would so lead. Lord, we know our ability to live for you is directly related to our ability to love you. And the possibility we have to love you is because of the life that you laid down for us. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would help us as we move forward again this week to live your life that dwells in us to each and every person we encounter. Christ in me, working through me to reach others like me. In your name, God's people said,